It's the weekend, one weekend before Memorial Day, on a hot and hazy Saturday morning in Newark, New Jersey. I am your host of the Logic and Larry podcast, Larry K. Everything I say on this podcast is strictly my opinion as a personal, private citizen expressing my own private opinions as a private citizen. Nothing I say on this podcast in any way reflects the views or positions of any other entity. I am not speaking to you in any official capacity. I am not speaking to you in any official title or any official position. Everything I say is strictly for entertainment purposes. Everything I say is strictly my own private opinion as a private citizen. All of that being said, you know we're going to keep it real. Unfortunately, what you're listening to right now is a re-recorded version of the same content from last night. You see, I did a live show last night. A live show last night for the live audience. And you guys know it it is kind of different. Some of you guys do both. Some people are on the live show for a little bit, some weeks. Then you listen to the recorded version some weeks. You get it on your iHeartRadio. You get it on your Apple Music. You get it on your Amazon. You get it on your Google. But a lot of you are all the time recorded listeners, and a lot of you are all the time live listeners. So we had a great show with the live audience last night. And unfortunately, due to technical difficulties, we lost the recording. That wasn't on me. That was on Podbean. And I love Podbean. They've been very good to me, but they lost the recording. Now, I submitted a ticket to try to see if we could salvage the recording. I'm actually still waiting on that. So <clears throat> perhaps if they get get it back to me before this recording comes out, I'll release the live version because the energy was just really good. Uh, but if you're hearing this, chances are I didn't get it back in time. I had to get the podcast out. The content's important. We're going through a lot of crazy times. There's a lot we have to talk about, so i got to get this content out to everybody. Rest assured, my outline was on point last night. The content and the facts and what we're going to discuss are exactly the same as last night. Rest assured, the playlist is the same as yesterday, last night. The playlist is a nice kind of feel-good, chill, sunny springtime, almost summertime playlist since we're one week away from a Memorial Day weekend, as everybody knows, especially in the New Jersey, New York area, Memorial Day weekend is the unofficial start to summer, and we are excited for that. But despite all the excitement, despite the optimism that may be in the air with the sunshine glowing through, we once again find ourselves in a ton of societal strife, a litany of false narratives. And once again, a ton of confusion, anger, sadness, and depression at the state of our society. And I can't say that I can offer much optimism with regard to that other than us just continuing to incrementally chip away at the false narratives and us incrementally trying our best to convince other people to get objective, get real, look at the bigger picture, use their logic, use their facts, and try to help us all find better solutions for a better tomorrow. We start with basic news on the Ukraine front, and I have said it and I will continue to say it, that even though, isn't it interesting, that such a huge news story that continues to go on kind of hits the back pages as the natural news cycle progresses, like Ukraine's still going through this all-out war. Ukraine's still fighting Russia. 
but because we have other things going on domestically, we kind of lose track of what's going on in Ukraine. But you, the war is still raging, I assure you. As far as we know, by the way, Russia is still eyeing the east side of Ukraine. I still think it's inevitable that eventually a ceasefire may in fact result in Russia annexing some part of eastern Ukraine while western Ukraine remains free. Um, that being said, last night on the live show, CLR Funding pointed out that Ukraine is actually launching launching a counteroffensive going east. So Ukraine not only successfully defended the western cities, it is now launching a counteroffensive going east to attack Russia. So that is just something to applaud. And even though it kind of gets lost in the back pages of our, you know, dialogue and our news cycle here. The fact is, that's big news. I will continue to say that the Ukraine-Russia war is the eastern front of Western civilization. That is the front lines of the battlefield between, you know, the society and the world as we know it and other powers and forces, autocracy trying to take over. Now, some might say there's a domestic front to that, too, but we're not going to get into that tonight. You know where I stand on it. But in other news in Ukraine, a Russian soldier in one of the first war crimes trials going on out there. And one of the first war crimes trials going on out there, a Russian soldier has admitted in court to killing a Ukrainian civilian. So not only are we seeing Ukraine push east and the war going much better for Ukraine than anybody anticipated initially, you are also seeing war crimes trials starting to take place and Russian soldiers starting to admit some of the atrocities that they were participating in out there. So that is good news, and that is uh, you know an important development as well. In other news involving Russia, I will continue to beat this drum. I don't think it gets enough attention. I don't think we pay enough attention to it. This is an Olympian. This is a WNBA star and an American U.S. gold medalist several times over Olympic star. This is Brittany Griner. An American icon in athletics, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't get enough attention. She's still being illegally held in Russia due to some nonsense about finding hash in her luggage. Finally, the Biden administration has come out and officially declared that Griner is being unlawfully detained, improperly detained. Uh, Adam Silver of the NBA has come out and now thrown the NBA's weight behind trying to get contact with Brittany and getting her home. Adam Silver of the NBA has said that the NBA will be behind Brittany. I will continue to beat the drum. Uh, She has had some contact since she's been detained, but not enough. They are still trying to get better contact with her. I tend to think that this is somewhat a retaliatory uh, action by Russia against the United States due to the sanctions and all the other things that are going on. And again, the Russia conflict, you know, although it's in the back pages a little bit of the news, that's the primary reason why oil and gas prices are through the roof, which is a big primary driver of inflation overall. So this war in Russia should still be at the forefront of everybody's mind. Situations like Brittany Griner still should be at the forefront of everybody's mind. But I understand there's more current events that come up and things that come up, and it changes, you know, where your focus is. I get that. I understand that. But I'm just here to remind you of these stories because they're still quite important. So we will continue to follow the Brittany Griner story. Um, It's good to see the NBA get behind her. It's good to see the Biden administration put their full weight behind her. Um, But more needs to be done. It needs more attention. And we hope she has safe passage home very, very, very soon. 
But today we're going to talk about, and by the way, sorry for that call from getting over a little, feeling under the weather this week. All week I was feeling under the weather, felt a little better last night, feeling a little bit better than that today. So hopefully I continue to be able to get through this and feel okay. Uh, but I, you know, I was a little under the weather. So if I pause, if I sound a little congested, if my voice isn't what it's usually, what you're, the usual caliber you're used to, that's the reason. But look, what are we dealing with this week? We're dealing with, I think, two big stories. And I think, as usual, I mean, I should just start calling this the false narrative show, the the debunking the, the popular narrative program with Larry Kay, because it seems like every week all we're doing is debunking narratives and explaining what's actually going on in any of these narratives. Um, and it seems like it's just redundant, but hey, that's the way society is. Society is redundantly putting out narratives, so we must redundantly put them out and kick them to the curb, shouldn't we? Okay. So the first one is this baby formula case, this baby formula situation. If you've been paying attention, which, you know, I don't even have any babies. I'm a bachelor living in a studio apartment high in a city who chills, you know, doing music and working and going to bars. And I don't have any kids in sight. I don't even have a spouse or a significant other. But even I know about the baby formula shortage and the problems it's causing, as I should. It's a serious problem, right? But if you've been paying attention to it about two weeks ago, it was all like the Trumpies, right? It was all like the Republicans. They were they were really lashing out. They were they were taking this talking point to the next level. I mean, I saw stuff online on Instagram. You know, you're taking food out of my baby's mouth. Biden literally took the bottle from my baby away from my child and starved my child. Biden is a disgrace. Anybody who voted for Biden took food from my baby's mouth. That was last week. Now, yesterday, there was votes in Congress. Uh, I think Thursday, there were votes in the House regarding the baby formula shortage. And now you see the liberals coming out. Now, their narrative is Republicans, they want to overturn Roe v. Wade. They want to force you to have babies, but they hate babies. Republicans voted against feeding babies. Republicans refused to feed children. Republicans forced babies to be born only to starve them. That's the latest narrative from the left. Well, what the heck's going on? <laughs> you got these narratives flying around. You got memes. You got people who don't know anything about politics posting politics. What's going on with the baby formula shortage? Well, the truth is the baby formula shortage is a serious problem for obvious reasons. There really is a baby formula shortage. It's a very real problem. It is dire. If you are a parent of a small child, I my heart goes out to you. It must be terrifying. You're a parent. Your primary objective is to uh, take care of your child. And to provide for your children, and you don't know if you can day-to-day, that's got to be terrifying and horrible. And there is a very real shortage. Now, the good news is that the shortage should hopefully be resolved in the coming weeks very shortly. And the reason for that is that the FDA has struck a deal with a major supplier. Now, to explain the baby formula shortage... To break through the narratives and who, you know, I want to get down to who is to blame. What did happen here? Well, here's what happened. To start, and you know, on this show and in general, I'm a very, very big advocate. Anybody who listens to the show, anybody who follows me regularly on any issue, on any program knows. I am a big advocate of breaking up monopolies. I am very suspicious of monopolies. I'm almost like Teddy Roosevelt in that regard. 
I don't like big corporate monopolies. I think they should be broken up as far as the internet. I think they should be broken up in other several other industries. Way too many corporations, well, actually a small, too small number of corporations own way too many industries and subsidiaries, and it causes a lot of problems. And here is a prime example of when that can cause a huge problem. So first of all, in the U.S. domestic baby formula market, four corporations control almost all of the U.S. supply of baby formula. And those are Abbott, Reckitt Benister, Nestle, and Perigo. And Abbott is by far the largest one. I believe their market share is something like as big as 40%. And they're only one-fourth of the companies. One-fourth of the company owns almost half the supply. So that's a big problem, right? So Abbott is by far the largest supplier of baby formula in the country. Well, what happened was... This is the origin of the formula crisis. I'm not sure everybody knows this, but in February or earlier this year, four infants, four separate infants who had consumed Abbott manufactured baby formula were hospitalized. And four babies were hospitalized. And I'm hoping that the sound is all right. It looks like on my meter it might be cutting out a little, but I really hope it's not. It's been a lot of technical difficulties with this recently. So hopefully it's clear. I don't know, guys. I'm trying. <laughs> I really got to upgrade my setup. But four babies were hospitalized. Four babies were hospitalized with serious infections after consuming Abbott baby formula. Two infants who had consumed the Abbott baby formula unfortunately and tragically passed away from their infections from the Abbott baby formula. And so the FDA started an investigation. Now, obviously, we all want our babies to have formula, but obviously if you're a parent out there and you just buy formula from the store, the last thing you expect after all the hard work you're putting in taking care of your child, your delicate child, is for the formula you feed them with to kill them. That's unexpected. It's tragic. It's terrible. And that's very bad, just like the formula shortages. So, of course, there's concern, and there was concern, of course, about the contamination of baby formula. So the FDA started investigating Abbott because of these four baby hospitalizations and these two baby deaths. They found that the plant in Sturgis, Michigan, the Abbott plant in Sturgis, Michigan, had a contamination problem. Therefore, Abbott voluntarily recalled a huge swath of the formula that had been manufactured in the Michigan plant. They recalled it, and that already obviously takes a ton of baby formula off the shelves. Now, here's where the FDA got involved, and here's where you could maybe say perhaps Biden had something to do with this. Perhaps we can look at the Biden administration and point some blame at the Biden administration. Well, the FDA... Which should know. Let's be honest. I don't know the inner workings, the ins and outs of the FDA, so I can't speak unequivocally like I know everything about it. What I can say, though, is you would assume, you would think that if your expertise, if your expertise is supply chains and, and food regulation, if you are the head of the FDA, if you are an important person in the FDA, you would think, you would think that you would understand that if you had a voluntary recall from the largest supplier of baby formula and then you were to shut down their plant, it might lead to severe shortages down the road. Now, the FDA not only 
participated and worked out the voluntary recall of the formula already on the shelves, but they forced the shutdown of the Sturgis, Michigan plant. Now, the problem with that is that the Sturgis, Michigan plant accounts for almost half, about half of Abbott's total output of formula. So you were shutting down half the supply of the biggest supplier in the country in February after you had a huge, massive recall. You would have to think. You would have to think that that would cause a huge problem. Why wouldn't that cause a huge problem? It'd be crazy if it didn't cause a huge problem. So that's where you could say, you know, the Biden FDA was to blame. That's where you could say the Biden administration, Biden's hiring these people, Biden presides over this FDA. This is his administration, these are his people, and they didn't have the foresight to work something out a little bit better than shutting down a plant and having a a massive recall at the same time. They didn't see that that would cause a problem down the road. And here's the thing. It's understandable if the plant needed to be closed down to save babies' lives, to save the lives of vulnerable infants who may be, you know, exposed to this bacteria. But the thing is, once the shortage hit the fan recently, the FDA worked out a deal very quickly with Abbott, where in four days the plant should be started up again. So you're telling me they couldn't have worked out this deal, they couldn't have figured this out earlier in the process? I find that hard to believe. So the, the Biden administration is partially to blame here. But on the other hand, Abbott's to blame. Abbott's the one who had the original contamination that killed two infants. So it's not all Biden's fault. It's not all the FDA's fault. And you couple this all with the supply chain problems we already have, and you can see why it's like a confluence of issues. It's a complicated thing. Like most things in this world, it's complex and it's complicated, right? So the head of the FDA says we should start seeing the um, the squeeze start easing soon as this plant reopens. But there was a there were a ton of missteps. But now on to this narrative thing, on to this vote that occurred. You see. First, it was Biden took food out of my baby's mouths. I explained that angle. Whether you agree with that or not, it's fine. But now there's this latest narrative that Republicans, all the Republicans in the House, 192 Republicans voted against funding baby formula. They hate baby formula. They don't like baby formula. They don't care about babies. They don't care about you. Well, here's what happened. And it's funny. I didn't even know any of this. I just saw somebody post the narrative online. And when I saw them post the narrative online, I just looked it up on Google real quick just to see what the vote was, who voted for. I wasn't I wasn't even trying to drill a hole in the theory. I mean, I'm so conditioned. I thought they probably did vote against it. What do I know? But it's funny because when I looked it up, here's what actually happened. There were two votes in the House regarding the baby formula crisis. OK, one vote was just additional funding, millions of dollars of additional funding to the FDA. So it wasn't like, oh, it goes directly to baby formula. It wasn't funding the manufacture of more baby formula. It wasn't anything like that. It was just additional funding to the FDA, earmarking funds for the FDA going forward, because apparently the FDA is underfunded. It needs more personnel to handle problems like this. Now, that may or may not be true. I don't know the ins and outs of the FDA's funding right now off the top of my head. But... I'm sure since the FDA participated somewhat in contributing to this problem, whether it was because they were underfunded or whether it was bad decisions or whether because somebody in power and the bureaucracy made a wrong decision, I really don't know. I don't know the ins and outs. 
But one bill was simply to give more funding to the FDA, and that funding would continue even once the baby formula crisis wound down. You still have this additional funding in the millions to the FDA. That's the vote. The vote to send extra money to the FDA, just send it to the FDA. That's the vote that 192 Republicans voted against. So the reason all these people are posting on social media that Republicans hate babies and all that, hate formula, is because they voted against this blind funding to the FDA. That's what they voted against. Not formula directly. The second vote that occurred in the House was actually with the WIC program, the WIC, Women, Infant, and Children program, which is a program that provides food and you know supplemental uh, supplies to women with young children and to young children directly or indirectly by way of these women. It's the program that provides nutrition to low-income families with children. There was a bill in the House to expand formula access for low-income families that were participants in the WIC program i.e. it would allow them to buy different kinds of formula and find ways to attain more formula with their WIC benefits that they previously weren't allowed or didn't have access to. That bill, the bill which actually directly dealt with formula to low-income people, almost everybody in the House, Democrat and Republican, voted for. Almost every Republican voted for that. Almost every Republican and every Democrat voted to expand access to formula to WIC recipients. Now, only nine, and that's what I was, I was looking up this vote and everybody's saying all the Republicans voted against it. I kept seeing nine Republicans, nine Republicans. I'm like, what are you talking about? I thought everybody did. Well, because nine of these are the bozos, nine of the ones you'd always expect. (laughs) When I read this list, and I have the list in front of me, when I read the list to you, you're going to be like, oh, this, you're just going to roll your eyes. You're like, oh, the, the usual crew. I mean, so... Out of all the Republicans in the House, they all voted to expand access to low-income women to formula, except nine. Nine are the ones who just love to see anything that hurts the Biden administration, which we always say. That's part of the problem with this country, right? It's just petty back-and-forth nonsense. Petty back-and-forth nonsense just to hurt the other party and no actual solutions for the people. We always say that, don't we? And that's what happened here. But only nine of them. So this whole narrative that Republicans voted against baby formula, they voted against funding the FDA. They almost all voted to actually give access to low-income women to baby formula. But I'll read you the nine Republicans who voted against expanded access to low-income women. I'll read them right now. And and you're not going to be surprised. Here they are. Andy Biggs of Arizona, Lauren Bobbert of of Colorado, Matt Gates of Florida, Louis Gohmert of Texas, Paul Gozer of Arizona. Gozer. Sounds like Ghostbusters, but whatever. Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia. Clay Higgins, Louisiana. Thomas Mosey, Kentucky. And Chip Roy, Texas. And it might be Wah if you are a Patrick Wah fan in the hockey, but it's Roy. You know those. You know that crew. You see that crew. Bobbert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Louis Gohmert. You see that crew coming from a mile away. That's nothing new. But that's not the whole party posting the vote that the whole party voted against formula. That's inaccurate. So at the end of the day, right, you you can agree or disagree as to how much the Biden administration's to blame for the formula crisis, the FDA, Biden's FDA, uh, how much the Abbott manufacturing, the Abbott Corporation is responsible since they had the original contaminant that killed babies in the first place. 
you know, intelligent minds, informed minds can disagree on that stuff. But this false narrative that it's like either Biden's literally taking the food out of your baby's mouth or Republicans are unanimously voting against nutrition for children. They're all false narratives. And it's amazing how, like, as soon as the vote happened, I did a 10-minute search on Google and was able to ascertain all of this information very quickly. Yet in that same 10-minute span, I saw, like, 20 people on my social media, my various social media accounts and various social media mediums, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, like... 20 of them within 10 minutes start posting the same meme about how Republicans hate babies and quoting the vote and misconstruing kind of mis you know misrepresenting what the actual vote count was that they were sharing and in that 10 minutes they could have just researched it for themselves and they could have shared the actual information with their friends and family so that we could all have a better understanding of what's going on it's not even that hard we're all intelligent human beings we could all absorb information But instead of doing the responsible thing and getting the actual facts out there so we could all think for ourselves, within a 10-minute span, there was just misinformation and misrepresentation. Everybody starts running with it like it's true. And if you ask them today what happened with the Republican vote, they'd probably tell you they voted against formula. Because it becomes common knowledge, because it proliferates so quickly, you can't counteract it with truth. And once it's embedded in the brain and it's seen as the true narrative, there's no going back from it. And it's terrifying. And speaking of those kinds of embedded beliefs and embedded things and things that people want to rage against, but only in selective situations, narratives that they want to push that benefit their political ideology rather than having a comprehensive understanding of the problem, what the problem is, what caused the problem, and how we can fix the problem. I want to move to a a, a huge tragedy that occurred this week, A, a terrible, sad tragedy which we've seen way too many times over and over again in this country. A tragedy that seems to become be becoming commonplace in this country. Where it's almost as if we let it ride its news cycle for a week and then we move on. We do nothing about it. We don't try to do anything about it. We take what political notoriety we can from it. We take what political anger we can from it. And then we move right on from it and we just let the next one occur. And it's just the cost of living in the United States. It's like a third world country the way we live with this. That's not even to mention the violence we see every day in our city streets with guns and weapons and misguided males. But we have now seen mass shootings on such a grand scale on such a consistent basis that it's like commonplace. And rather than hunker down and look at what actually causes these shootings, what they have in common, what can be done to stop them. We continue to trade barbs based on the identity of the perpetrator, based on their chosen quote-unquote motive, take pot shots at each other politically rather than get to the bottom of the problem. What I'm talking about is the Tops Massacre in Buffalo, where unfortunately 11 people who all they were doing that day was going to the store and because they were black because they were african-american they did nothing else but wake up be a certain skin color and go to the grocery store and they were savagely and viciously murdered just for being black and going to the grocery store in buffalo because of some white supremacist who decided to go out 
and take his rage at society and his suicidal death wish out on other people. Those people, I'll say their names. I will not say his name. I'll say their names. Aaron Salter, Ruth Whitfield, Catherine Massey, Pearlie Young, Hayward Patterson, Celestine Cheney, Roberta Drury, Morgus Morrison, Andre McNeil, and Geraldine Talley. They were murdered by somebody with a death wish who had nothing going for him, who had nothing better to aspire to than to murder other people because his life was terrible, because he was a bum. And he will be brought to justice, as Dylan Roof was, as so many others were. But it doesn't bring back the lives lost. It doesn't quell the anger of the people. And I understand that. But what was intriguing, not intriguing, but what, what bothers me is just a couple weeks ago, we had a shooting in New York City. We had a mass shooting in New York City. Now, I understand part of the reason there's not as much outrage and part of the reason there's not as much news coverage has kind of died down earlier. Part of the reason is because no one died, thank God. No one died when Frank James shot up the subway a few weeks ago. But I have a leg to stand on when I discuss this subject because if you go back and listen to the episode, only one or two episodes ago on the Logic and Larry podcast, if you go back and listen to the episode where I discussed Frank James and the subway shooting, I said, and I have said it with every mass shooter, and by the way, I include bombings, car runnings over, I include any act of mass murder that fits a similar profile in this discussion, not just a gun, anything, they can use any tool to inflict pain that way. I have said, and I will continue to say, and you will not stop me from saying, because it's the actual factual truth, and I'm looking to actually solve this problem and save lives rather than gain political points. Every one of these mass murderers fits a similar profile. Every one of them. Now, whether they're white and, and white supremacists, whether they're black and angry at other things, whether they're Middle Eastern and angry and choosing ISIS as their motivation, whether they are whatever they are. They all share common traits, and if we want to actually fix the problem and actually solve it, we have to get down to the bottom of it. Now, in this particular case, in this particular case, this individual had threatened to shoot up his high school at age 17. He threatened to shoot up his high school and kill himself. He had publicly said he was going to shoot up his high school and kill himself. Police were called in to investigate. The situation was investigated. New York has a red flag law. A red flag law in New York is supposed to alert authorities and, quote, red flag somebody like this person when they go to buy a gun because they have a problem and they shouldn't be buying a gun because they are high risk. This person, there was a red flag. There were warning signs. It was known to authorities, yet he still was able to legally purchase a gun. And again, to all the gun nuts out there who are always pushing back whenever there's gun violence on any kind of gun regulation, most of the saying, oh, they get them illegally anyway. No, most mass shooters, and I understand that's not the bulk of gun violence, which is a whole other subject, but most mass shooters, mass murderers that use guns in this country actually obtain their guns legally. They obtain their guns legally, Okay. And so he obtained his guns legally, even after all these warning signs, not to mention that he was on the Internet and more on this in a second. He was on the Internet for months 
not only saying he was going to conduct a shooting, not only saying he was going to specifically target African Americans, not only saying he was going to specifically target the Buffalo area, but straight up saying publicly on internet forums for months leading up to this that he was going to target that exact supermarket and even discussing the times and, pl- and areas of the supermarket where he was going to shoot. So we, there's so much to talk about. There's so much investigation that could occur. So much investigation regarding the red flag law in New York, the failure of it, regarding why nobody in the authorities properly communicated with each other to prevent him from attaining a gun, why the Internet is allowed to fester and and allow this type of rhetoric and this type of encouragement to go on, why people who witness it and do nothing and don't report it are allowed to go get away scot-free. There's so much to talk about about the actual causes surrounding this shooting. But I heard so little this week. Almost nothing this week about red flag laws or the authorities' failure to thwart the issue or access to guns or at-risk males. I heard almost nothing about that. You know what I heard about all week? I didn't hear about red flag laws in New York or an investigation. I heard about Tucker Carlson. Everybody was talking about Tucker Carlson. Corny, bad haircut, dork, Tucker Carlson. We have so much to talk about, and what everybody wants to talk about is Tucker Carlson. Because Tucker mentions replacement theory once in a while or something. And yes, this kid subscribed to replacement theory. But Frank James last week subscribed to anti-integration. Hated interracial couples, hated Hispanic people, hated white people. Different mentality, different philosophy. This guy chose replacement theory. Both guys were at risk. Both guys were posting hate on the Internet and planning to kill somebody. Both guys obtained firearms legally. Both should have been stopped from obtaining them. Both should have been caught long before the shooting. But we want to talk about just Tucker Carlson. We don't want to talk about what they have in common. We don't want to talk about what every mass shooter has in common because it's politically convenient now. We want to talk about Tucker Carlson. You know why? Because the cable news channels, MSNBC and CNN, they want to take shots at Tucker. And then Tucker will take shots at them when it's a Middle Eastern shooter or, a, you know, somebody with an immigration problem or something. He'll take a shot at them. And then they'll go out to the little cocktails in D.C. and in New York, they use this as an excuse to take little cable news shots at each other. And the disgrace is that so many of my peers and so many people in the public allow them to do that, not only allow them to do it, but exponentially increase their echo chamber and regurgitate and repeat the nonsense rather than discussing the actual problem. And that drives me mad because people are dying. And more will die until we look at the problems. To those points, I want to discuss two articles both of which I shared on my social media this week. The first one was by Kyle Chaka in The New Yorker. And in The New Yorker, he wrote an article that said the online, the title was The Online Spaces That Enable Mass Shootings. And he really delved into the world of 8chan and Discord, which was where this person published and discussed a lot of their pl- Excuse me, a lot of their plans to carry out the mass shooting in Buffalo. He explained how the Internet, so the same, the same problem we have intellectually with general algorithms, right? The same clout chasing, the same feedback loop that we get as people. 
when we go on Facebook or Instagram or any other social media platform and try to just get attention for ourselves by advertising what we're doing, our vacations, our brands, just getting likes, you know, getting reactions, that same feedback loop that motivates us all in the regular social media world. Apparently, studies have shown that that same feedback loop also motivates mass shooters in a much more twisted way in a much darker, more exclusive corner of the Internet, meaning they don't just shoot because they simply want to do it in a vacuum. Part of what motivates these shootings is the feedback they get online. And studies have shown, and in this particular case, individuals online on 8chan, on Discord, were encouraging him. They knew what he was going to do. They were encouraging him. They were egging him on. They were making bets about him. They were. There was a feedback loop that further encouraged and charged him up to do this. And part of the argument was without these online spaces, perhaps the feedback loop would not be sufficient enough to actually cause them to go through with some of these things. So that was an intriguing aspect to this, and I think it can't be denied. When you look at Frank James, when you look at him, when you look at almost every other mass shooter or mass murderer, there is some Internet component that we've seen, especially as of recent, maybe not as far back as Columbine, but as these things have evolved, as they've increased in frequency, as they've increased and, and, and started to really get more of a standard MO. As you know, Of course, the, the targets and the motivations and the ideology is different, but the MOs remain largely the same, large public gatherings indiscriminately killing people. Um, even if it's a certain type of people, it's indiscriminate within that group. Um, you are seeing that. Now, there are ways to try to attack that, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Now, the other article I wanted to talk about, though, which was perhaps even more... Oh, the other thing about that is, in that article in The New Yorker about the online spaces, it was also discovered that this Buffalo shooter was highly motivated by, inspired by, and idealized... Idolized, I'm sorry, idolized the Christchurch New Zealand shooter... And if you remember, the Christchurch New Zealand shooter was not targeting African-Americans, though he might have had white supremacist beliefs. He was attacking a mosque. So there's already the motivation is different, right? The ideology is, is different, right? Because if, if the Buffalo shooter wanted to truly follow in the footsteps of the ideology of the person he idolized, he would have targeted a mosque or some religious thing. But he didn't. He chose African-Americans. Further showing that the, the idolization, the motivations, the underlying ones have more to do with mass murder and dying themselves and going out in a blaze of glory generally, and I say that, you know, not in a, in a positive light, uh, but in their own minds going out in a blaze of glory, than they do with the, the end ideology, the end victim group that they choose. He chose somebody who targeted a mosque, but he was char targeting African Americans. But that's who he idolized. That was his chief inspiration. So it's just, that's interesting. Now the other article, the, probably the more important article, well maybe they're both important, but the other article I wanted to touch on was in the Washington Post. Now this is the Washington Post. So if you're a left-leaning person, if you have leftist you know, ideologies, this is the Washington Post. Now granted, it's an opinion piece, it's an editorial, but still, it's the Washington Post. In the Washington Post, two individuals uh, collaborated on an article, and they were James Densley and Jillian Peterson. James Densley and Jillian Peterson. Now who are they? Why would we want to listen to them about mass shootings? Well, they are both professors of criminology. And so what? They're professors of criminology. But why do we want to listen to them just because they're professors of criminology? Who cares, right? Well, it just so happens that they collaborated on writing a book. And do you know what that book was entitled? Well, that book that they wrote was entitled 
How to Stop Mass Shootings. They wrote a book called How to Stop Mass Shootings. Okay, so they did a lot of research into mass shootings and the best ways to stop them and what causes them. And they wrote an editorial in the Washington Post. And the title of their article was that hate is not the primary motivator of mass shootings. Now, to anybody in the echo chamber this week, railing against Tucker Carlson, saying we need more critical race theory, you know, we need more, it's all about anti-racist teachings and racism and da-da-da, all that, this article says hate is not the primary motivator of mass shootings. And now most of these people who are saying, you know, it's all about racism, it's all this, it's all that, they weren't saying much when Frank James shot up the subway, even though the motivations were similar. I didn't really hear about them. I didn't hear much from them at all. Just like right-wing people, you're not hearing anything from them about Buffalo. Maybe thoughts and prayers, but you're not hearing any kind of anger or request for action. But when it's a Middle Eastern person who does this, then they all of a sudden come out and demand action. But they always demand it at the border where Trump wanted a Muslim ban or something. Again, missing the point, missing the cause of the mass shootings, going for a political point instead of looking at what they all have in common. And this article was important because it broke down what actually motivates these mass shooters. They all have something in common. What they found they had in common. And I got to take the L on this because mental instability, certainly they had in common, but I'm always saying mental illness. But what they found is most of the people who committed these shootings were not like kind of ranting and raving about like schizophrenic voices in their heads or some crazy alien CIA conspiracy theory, like not that type of mental health. More so, these people all had in common two things, two main, two, two or three main things. One, They were very dissatisfied with their life, and they had a bone to pick or a grievance with society writ large. They all were in bad positions in their life, and they blamed society, and they were angry about their positions in life. Two, they were suicidal, or they had some sort of death wish. Either fantasizing of dying by cop, dying on the scene, committing suicide, or eventually dying, ending their life some other way. And three... They all wanted to go out. They all had this feedback loop from the Internet, and they all wanted to go out in this, quote, blaze of glory, take a bunch of other people with them and be remembered. They didn't just want to go out and die, which kind of makes sense, right, because they're so mad that they're so insignificant in life. Of course, when they take their life, they want the final last hurrah, the final last middle finger at society to be that they go out with notoriety. They don't just go out as a nobody that they are in life. And they explained that all of these people had that in common. That no matter what their end motivation was, it was irrelevant because they already, the root of the problem was the suicidal death wish, the grievance against society, the anger, the social isolation, the ultimate extremist ideology that they chose to pick to claim that they, you know, murdered under the banner of that ideology was very, very a distant secondary consideration. Now, of course, the narratives this week all say it's all because of, you know, racism, this and that. 
Yeah, well, this particular guy picked that. But if you want to actually stop mass shootings, because next week it'll be a different motivation. It'll be a different perpetrator. It'll be different victims. And the week after that, and the week after that, it'll be different until it comes back around to the same victims. We are all at risk. You could be at risk for being a gay person. You could be at risk for being a black person. You could be at risk for being a woman. You could be at risk for working in a certain place. All these things. If we want to save lives, we have to look at the actual causes, not just try to score political points when the carousel comes back around to something that fits our political agenda. And if you don't believe me, if you think I'm just pontificating, if you think I'm doing, quote, whataboutism, or you think I have an agenda, well, allow me to break down some of the biggest mass murderers and mass shooters and guys like this in recent memory. I'll explain their motivation, their demographic, the demographic they targeted. And let's see if they have a lot in common or a lot different. And let's see if they're all consistently adhering to just Islamic extremism or white supremacy or if they all have different things in common. You've got the NYC subway bomber, 2017. He was arrested in New Jersey. He tried to blow himself up by strapping a bomb to his chest and also take out several other commuters in New York City, but luckily he failed. 2017, he was a Middle Eastern man. He claimed ISIS, the Islamic State, inspired him to kill people. The Boston Marathon Bombers, the two brothers, 2013, took the lives of several people, permanently maimed others. One of them died going out against the cops. The other one is currently on death row. They were of Middle Eastern descent. Young men, isolated from the world. The older brother had a lot not going for him in life. He was a constant failure. They claimed Al-Qaeda inspired them to commit mass murder. Frank James, the subway shooter, luckily did not kill anybody but tried to kill people, went on rant after rant against interracial marriage, against white people, against Hispanic people, wanted to shoot up, didn't like Hispanic people, and his area that he targeted was primarily Hispanic. He was a black man, isolated, again, failure at life. 2019 in Jersey City. The people who targeted the three Jewish people randomly at a Jewish grocery store murdered them all and murdered a police officer. They were both African-American. They were motivated by anti-Semitism and anti-police beliefs. They were failing at life and were on the ropes. And at the end of their rope, they went on a suicide mission and they both died in a, quote, blaze of glory. And again, I do not say that in a positive light, but it's something we can all understand, the connotations. They went out in a blaze of glory killing Jewish people and police officers. They were African-American. Dylan Roof, 2015, killed nine African-American people in a church when they accepted him into their prayer group. It was one of the most disgusting, heinous crimes we've ever seen. Dylan Roof was motivated by white supremacy. Dylan Roof was a white individual. Dylan Roof is currently on death row. He had a nothing life. He was at the end of his rope. He said he wanted to start a race war. Micah Xavier Johnson, African-American, killed Dallas police officers, five Dallas police officers who were just minding their own business, ambushed them and killed them in 2016. He was motivated by anti-police beliefs and racial justice beliefs. He killed five police officers. His life was going nowhere fast. Orlando nightclub shooter Omar Mateen, Middle Eastern descent, killed 49, 49 people at an Orlando nightclub, 49. They were almost all Latino. They were almost all in the LGBTQ community. Omar Mateen claimed ISIS was his cause. 
His life was on the ropes. Many speculate, based on talking to his family members, that Omar Mateen himself was homosexual and was so insecure about it and so isolated from his family and his beliefs about it that his life was unraveling and he had a suicide wish and so he killed 49 people under the banner of ISIS. The Navy Pensacola shooting. Middle Eastern, Saudi Arabian man. He had been training in a joint operation with the United States Armed Services. He claimed that ISIS and Al-Qaeda were his inspiration. What does he have in common with everybody else? The night before, the night before the shooting, he and others went to a dinner party and they watched videos of other United States mass shootings. Not just Islamic mass shootings, but other United States mass shootings writ large. Sandy Hook Elementary School, 2012, 28 people dead, including 20 babies, 20 little baby children, kindergartners. Adam Lanza, a weird, weird fellow. You ever seen his picture? Somebody way out of place in life. Somebody who felt isolated from his parents, was had a grievance with his parents, had a grievance with society, also had a death wish, should have never had a gun killed 20 babies, 28 people in general, a white individual. The Vegas shooting, 61 deaths. Another white man, this time an older white male. 61 deaths in 2017. 61. They don't even, he never even claimed a real motive. All they know is his life was kind of boring and dull and going out and he didn't want to be dealing with it anymore. They don't even really know his motive. He never even claimed one. He had all kinds of weird searches and weird beliefs, but he didn't actually claim white supremacy or ISIS or some other cause. He just did it. Because the cause comes later. That's not what they have in common. That's not what causes it. We had the D.C. sniper. Remember that 20 years ago, the D.C. sniper, John Allen Muhammad. John Allen Muhammad and his, his little sidekick, Malvo, he was an African-American man, took out 15 people, 15 people he killed in this group, just killed them. What he have in common with everybody else? Well, he had two failed marriages, a failed business. Again, his life was going nowhere fast. He didn't care. You know what his motivation was that he told the psychiatrist? He wanted to start a race war. He wanted to start a race war and a revolution to bring about social justice. That's what he said. Where have we heard that before? Maybe the Buffalo shooting? Maybe Dylan Roof? Maybe Charles Manson? Except this was an African-American shooter. Then we had, of course, the Asian... Well, they call it the Asian shooting. It was the massage parlor shooting where most of the victims were Asian women, but not all the victims were Asian women. That was a white shooter. His claim was that it was about the sex industry because he was addicted to sex. But he was so addicted to sex because he... Obviously, he had failed romantic relationships everywhere. And again, his life was going nowhere. He was depressed. He was critical of himself. He had problems. He targeted the, quote, sex industry. And that became the narrative of it was Asian hate. And they started roping in other individual crimes against Asians, some hate crimes, some not, into this whole movement. Whether you agree with the movement or not, there were several people that I spoke to, especially in the African-American community, who had took some issue with the Asian hate movement because they thought it was misconstrued in some instances. Not all, but some people did. But yet he had more in common with all the other shooters. Here's the thing. I just showed you. They all have more in common with each other. It doesn't matter what their demographic is, what the demographic of the target was, and what the cause was. There are far more people that have all this in common 
than the handful of people that have the same cause. You could, oh, there's three, four ISIS, three, four white supremacists, three, but they're all the same when you look at social isolation, suicidal death wish, isolated male grievance with society, want to go out in a blaze of glory, internet feedback loop. And the reason I push this is not to take away people's thunder, so to speak. It's not to tell you that you shouldn't be concerned about race, you shouldn't be concerned about gender, you shouldn't be concerned about hate or, or, or troubling, you know, hateful rhetoric. I'm not telling you you can't do that. What I'm telling you is don't show up to the one shooting that goes with your political ideology and, and say, I demand this and this and this and this and act like that's going to stop mass shootings and ignore all the other ones that all have the same profile because then you're contributing because if you're not part of the solution you're part of the problem then you're contributing to the problem because you're not attacking it at its root where the problem actually lies you're just trying to score political points i saw so many people this week come out and say well this is why we need critical race theory in schools this is why we need more anti-racist thing maybe and whether you agree with those things or not it's fine but it's really irrelevant to mass shootings because actually, the philosophies going back and forth, like you saw with the Dallas shooter or the D.C. sniper or then the it's it's all just a back and forth. The more we double down on our, you know, entrenched political rhetoric and fighting back and forth and blaming the other demographic and blaming this race and blaming that race and blaming this person and that the more we get into that, the more the vitriol increases and the more opportunity there is for these people that are already out there, that are already suicidal, that already have a grievance against society, the more opportunity there is for them to latch on to one of these philosophies and use one of these philosophies as their motivation to go kill somebody. So if your solution is to double down on rhetoric and double down on that, that's fine, but it has nothing to do with mass shootings. And actually, you have to admit, it might contribute more to them selecting a motivation. You might not want to hear it, but that's true. And why do I care? Why am I beating that drum? Because I actually care about saving lives. I care about each and every mass shooting. I care about each and every life lost. I want to talk about potential solutions. What are some potential solutions? Well, first of all, let's see why the red flag law in New York failed. Let's get a federal red flag law. Let's employ many, 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 many thousands more cybercrime law enforcement officials to police these Internet forums and police these far reaches of the Internet and look for these people and look for warning signs of these people. Let's develop a federal law that mandates the reporting of this type of internet activity, mandates somebody who's sitting in 8chan, who sees somebody so specifically playing out publicly his plans to go murder people on the basis of race at a top supermarket in Buffalo. If they saw that and participated in any way in that conversation and did not report it to authorities and did not make any effort to report it to authorities, they should be liable for a crime. They should be charged with a crime. Let's make a law, a statute that mandates the reporting of that if you are privy to that conversation or if you participate in that conversation more specifically because the culpability is stronger if you participated because so many people participated in the conversation with this terrible person in Buffalo and did nothing. Encouraged them. Let's establish more cybercrime law enforcement officials who can go after these people. They can go after their IP addresses. Trust me, they can find out who they are. They could put cuffs on them and haul them off to prison. Let's increase penalties for people like that. Let's increase liability for agencies that investigate people like this and fail to properly alert other authorities and thus kick in the red flag law. Let's make 
gun manufacturers and more importantly gun stores liable when they sell this type of weapon to individuals without properly checking their background i don't care if it's the law or not if you're a gun shop owner you are gonna have to make the choice you want liability or you want the sale today take two weeks and investigate the person a little deeper otherwise you may be subject to so much liability civilly that your whole business is going to be shut down these are not all the solutions available these are not the only solutions we have but these are potential solutions. These are actual proposals that wouldn't just catch the white supremacist. They wouldn't just catch the ISIS-motivated killer. They wouldn't just catch the person who was targeting LGBTQ people because they were insecure about their own sexuality. They wouldn't just catch the Frank Jameses of the world who were ranting and raving about interracial marriage and wanted to target a subway station. They would catch them all. And of course, somebody's going to fall through the cracks. Nothing's ever 100%, but if we could lower it 90%, 75%, hell, 60%, it's saving lives. And instead of doubling down on our political agenda every time one of the shootings just so happens to fit within the confines of our political grievances and ideologies, why don't we expand it, be more responsible, and tackle all the mass shootings at once and stop pretending that the isolated one that comes around next week is all of a sudden the primary driver of everything. This week, it's white supremacy, and next week, when another ISIS-motivated motivated individual does it, it'll be the Trumpies saying we have to ban people. But banning people from flying into the country isn't going to stop the next shooter. It's not going to stop the next white supremacist. It's not going to stop the next Vegas shooter. It's not even going to stop the next ISIS-motivated shooter because somebody here could be motivated by ISIS. There have been white people motivated by ISIS. The guy who shot up the Republican baseball game was a Bernie supporter. He was a left-wing Bernie supporter. He shot up the Republican congressional baseball game. It doesn't matter what your chosen ideology is. And if you keep harping on your chosen ideology because this shooting happens to fit it, then you're missing the point and you're not part of the solution. And it breaks my heart. People might look at me and say, how could you be so rigid? How could you be so factual? How could you? No. How could you ignore the problem to fit your own emotional agenda? That's that's the question. How could you overlook what they all have in common, overlook real solutions, and overlook so many other shootings only to outrage at one or the other? How could you do that? Because the next group of people that pass away is partly because you didn't help to tackle the the solution, the, the, the problem at the root. And if we were got serious, got serious about tackling the problem and serious about what the root causes of the problem are and read articles like the one published and read books like the ones published by actual professors who study these things, who actually want to solve the problems. If as a society we got real and stopped feeding the cable news narrative, the self-serving cable news bubble that we operate within, if we all got a little more real, we could maybe save some lives. And I'll say their names again. Just for being black, just for going to the supermarket, because some psycho had a grievance with life and a death wish, and he chose white supremacy as his motivator, thus resulting in the death of black people, innocent black people. Aaron Salter, Ruth Whitfield, Catherine Massey, Pearl Young, Hayward Patterson, Celestine uh, Cheney, Roberta Drury, Morgus Morrison, Andre McNeil, Geraldine Talley. I'm sick of losing people 
because society doesn't want to get real. In two weeks, we're not going to talk about this anymore. We're not even going to talk about the reforms I discussed with the Internet, with at-risk males, with red flag laws. We're not even going to barely talk, talk about it. We're going to move on. That's disgusting. That's disgusting. And what do we do on the show? And we did it on the live show. It was a great, lively discussion because we can't solve the problem completely on our own. We know that. We can't solve the problem completely on our own. But what we can do is contribute positively to the dialogue. We can contribute to the public dialogue in a better way. Incrementally, this show has whatever, however many listeners it has consistently. It's a small number, but I see you guys out there constantly employing these dialogue tactics, employing this logic, spreading actual knowledge and actual objectivity into the world that helps to actually solve problems. And as you do it with one person, that person goes to two people, that person goes to three people, five people, we start to spread a better way of discussing these issues into the world. And when we do that, even though it might seem futile, even though it seems like the world is such a tough place, even though it seems like it's an uphill battle, we make incremental inroads into people's minds. And the more minds we can get to think solution-minded rather than reactionary, the more real we get about the problems we're facing and the less selective we are about which ones we want to discuss and which ones we want to kind of shoo under the mat and not bring up because they don't fit our political agenda... The closer we are to actually saving lives and actually making the world a better place for every person, every person who exists in this country and in this world. This wasn't a savory conversation. I don't think it was, but somebody's got to have difficult conversations and somebody's got to have difficult conversations in a productive way. And I am just somebody who's willing to have difficult conversations because I think they need to be had. We can't run and hide from reality. We can't run and hide from objective truth. And we can't run and hide from having difficult conversations with each other, uncomfortable conversations. If you have any doubt about where my heart is, where my soul is, what I care about, then you are missing the point. You need to really, we all need to really sit and think about how we're going to tackle these problems and how we're going to actually make a difference in this world. Now, next week is Memorial Day weekend. I won't see you next week, most likely, unless something crazy happens in the news. <clears throat> I've had a long spring, guys. It's, it's almost over. It's not quite over yet. There's a couple more events coming, but once these events wind down, I am very happy to just be working, enjoying the summer, and taking a breath because... These things, this spring has been very hectic and a lot going on, and I'm pretty tired, I have to be honest with you. So I won't see you next week, and then the following week I actually have a wedding, so I might do like maybe a pre-recorded release, which won't matter to you that are not live listeners, but I'll do a pre-recorded release, maybe maybe I'll just see you the week after. But we are going to have a good summer, we're going to continue to talk, we're going to continue to be logical, we are going to continue to be objective, we are going to continue to have these difficult discussions in a productive way. And as the weather gets warmer, the sun shines, we go on our vacations, we traverse the country, we hang out with our friends, we participate in barbecues, we toast to another year of life. 
I hope that despite all the hardships, despite all the tough conversations, despite all the news, despite all the violence, despite all the lost loved ones, despite all of it, we can keep some semblance of optimism and some sense of perseverance to continue to tackle these problems because if we lose our light we lose our optimism we lose our perseverance then the battle is already lost the battle is not lost yet we might be being pushed down a mountain the boulder may be heavy but look to your left look to your right look at those in the conversation with you look at those even who may be misguided who might be looking at the wrong things but look at them and say that person's soul that person's heart is good I know that person's heart I know that person's soul it's good and I can speak to that person that person can still be an ally in this fight for justice for what's right for a better world and get there and think about that when you're looking at the news and when things seem so futile and when you can't seem to get through to anybody look at that if we continue to do that I think we'll have a better go of it going forward. And we have a lot of life to live, and hopefully you have a lot of lives to save. We have a lot of minds to change. We have a lot of hearts to influence. So enjoy your weekend. If you're in the Northeast, it's going to be a hot one. Go out. Go to the beach. Go outside. Go have a drink. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy your family and friends. Have some positivity. Find some time to take a deep breath for yourself. And gear up for the next discussion that we will have very, very soon. I respect each and every one of you immensely. Whether you totally agree with me or totally disagree with me, it doesn't matter. I respect you and I welcome you into our dialogue. Until next time, go out with a little bit of Al Wilson. And I'll talk to you very soon. I'm signing off. Have a blessed week. Good night.